Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. But now it's time for our first guest of the evening. Given the lead by Rioli. Oh, here's one for old time's sake. He'll have a shot, Tim. He's got to have a shot. In his last game, to cut the margin to a point, he absolutely splits the middle. What a reaction from his teammates. And what a great moment for Rock and Rioli. Quite fitting that happened in an Essendon v Richmond game. It wasn't a dream time at the G game, but it was late in the 2006 season. And Indigenous round continues to grow, doesn't it, in significance each year as we celebrate the contribution of Indigenous players, both past and present, to Australian football. And ahead of the dream time at the G match this weekend, I thought it'd be timely to catch up with a former player who I know entertained many people, particularly kids of my generation throughout the 2000s with his silky skills and footy nous as well. He played 100 games for Essendon, played, I think, in the second ever dream time at the G match back in 2006. And as you heard there, his last AFL game was against Richmond back in that same year. He currently serves as the president of the Tiwi Bombers of the Northern Territory Footy League. I speak of Dean Rioli, and it's a pleasure to welcome him on the line. How are you, Dean? G'day, Damo. How you going? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks so much for joining us, particularly in an auspicious week. One of my last footy memories of watching you on the field actually was playing for the Tiwi Bombers when they were starting up, I think, around that 2006-2007 period. How are you enjoying the presidential role at the club in the Northern Territory Footy Leagues? I know COVID has made things difficult in recent years. Yeah, it's a little tough up there at the moment, especially for the Tiwi Bombers. But, yeah, I ended up playing those seven-game trial, I think it was, which... Mm. uh, before they brought them into the competition, it was just um, to see how viable it was and whether they're going to be competitive. And I think we won all seven games, so they brought us in the the very following year. So this year, yeah, joined the the club. Um, you know, I helped. They were they were in a bit of trouble, so um, yeah, I said I'd join the board, and they elected me as president. So a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I remember they televised those trial games back in the 06, 07 period. So it had national exposure, as it does these days. I also understand these days, Dean, you're a managing director of a company which assists in driving Indigenous employment outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing at the moment? Yeah, well, I was um, you know, involved for 15 years with Aboriginal employment, but now I run Bungie Hire. Um, which is, you know, basically equipment hire to these uh, major projects across Victoria and, and now branching off into Queensland and, and South Australia and New South Wales and the Northern Territory. But, yeah, look, I've, I've spent 15 years helping Aboriginal people get into employment, uh, especially on all these major projects that are happening across uh, across Victoria. Um, but, yeah, 15 years of, of working with people, mate. I, uh, I just got out of that and, and yeah, now Anji Hire is, is really about uh, supplying equipment to, to the industry now. Fantastic work. We're speaking with former Essendon champion Dean Rioli. There was reports last night, actually, Dean, that an Indigenous All-Stars match could be in vogue within the next 12 months or so. Would you like to see something like that, which is a concept the AFL is thinking of reviving? Yeah, look, obviously the very first one was, you know, the Indigenous All-Stars playing against Collingwood in 1995, yep. which my Uncle Morris was a part of, and Uncle Willie and Uncle Cyril. Um, so, you know, they were special games to watch, but 
I think it's been a couple of years now since the, the last one was played and it's great because I love the NRL versus the, the Mouldy concept. Mm. That's uh, always an exciting game to watch. So it'll be great if all the players become available and I know they're very proud to, to represent their people when those games are on. So if they can continue that and, and come against come up against some quality sides, it's just a, a good exhibition of, of Indigenous football because you know, a lot of people... Love watching Indigenous players, no matter what side they barrack for. They, um, you know, they bring some sort of X factor and entertainment. But yeah, to have a, a whole team that represent every two years, that'll be uh, be great for for the AFL to showcase. It was something I remember as a kid. I loved because it was the first game, first men's game of the year. It was before the preseason competition back then. I remember they played, and I think they beat Carlton back in two thousand and three. They played the Bombers in two thousand and seven. There were some great matchups there. How significant are initiatives like Indigenous Round and the Dreamtime at the G Game, which has been going for over a decade now, to you personally? And do you think more could be done to educate the wider public on Indigenous culture through the means of footy? Oh, look, there's always more that can be done, but I think the AFL do a fantastic job, um, you know, to 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 promote um, inclusion in their sport, and and you know it is uh, you know the inclusion of so many different nationalities that played this great game. But you know, this week is well, this fortnight now. I think when I played the very first one in 2005, it was just a one-off weekend, and um, um, now it's a it went to a whole week, and now it's a whole fortnight of celebrating Indigenous rounds. So. You know, it's great that each club, you know, they, they get people to come in and talk about, you know, the, the environment that they're from and the land that their their clubs are based on and, and you know, talk about the art and and culture and, and stories about um, where they they represent. And, um, you know, it's just it's a great acknowledgement for, for the contribution of Indigenous people in the game. But, um, yeah, it's just it's a fantastic job. And, look, there's always more that can be done, but... You know, I think the AFL play a role and, and it's about society as a whole, all playing a, a small role where they can. But, yeah, it's just fantastic that yep. the AFL continue to get better in, in what they uh, what they celebrate each year with, in, with the, uh, the Sir Douglas Nickers round. Yeah, it's a brilliant concept. We're speaking with former Essendon champion Dean Rioli. You mentioned your uncle Morris before, and the name Morris Rioli transcends the sport, doesn't it? And you played under Morris at Waratah, and we see his young boy, Morris Jr., going around at Richmond at the moment, strutting his stuff on the footy field and doing a fantastic job with plenty of scope for stardom going forward. Because plenty of people in Melbourne in particular remember his contribution as a player, what was he like as a coach playing under him there at Waratah? Oh, look, he's amazing, you know. I got to play a reserves game of football with him where, you know, I got into heaps of trouble because I was playing in the midfield at the time and he was the full forward and I kept looking for Shane Karanua, um, <laughs> you know, another young Tiwi full forward who was faster and, and was in a lot more space. But Uncle Morris kept yelling at me and saying, why aren't you kicking me the football? Um, and I said, well, your player's exactly, you know, right on you. And he said, don't you think I can beat him one-on-one? And that's when I realised, well, yeah, obviously you can, but um, look, it was just an honour. Um, I spent a lot of quality time with Uncle Morris watching games one-on-one as a 13, 14, 15-year-old and, you know, where he'd sit there and, and it was a, basically a one-on-one football lesson where he'd teach me in this situation, this is where you'd stand, this is what you need to do and this is what you would look for. And, and you know, I'll look back at it now, you know, um, and that was just quality lessons that, you know, to get one-on-one lessons like that with, you know, the great Morris Rioli. And to me, he was my uncle. He was my godfather. 
um, you know, it was just it was just special memories for me that um, you know will stick with me forever. What about his boy Morris Junior at Richmond? A lot of Richmond fans may be listening, driving home, wondering what he's capable of. From what you've seen of him so far, how much scope for improvement is there? A oh, massive scope. Look, he's still very young um, and he's very raw, um, but that's the thing. Look, he brings effort, he brings excitement. Um, you know, he's, he's still he's got a lot of work to do, but he just brings. You know, I think uh, Richmond people that are you know stop me in the street basically say they love him his defensive efforts and, you know, he's very selfless. So I guess when you look at Willie and Cyril, they're probably two of the most uh, talented Riolis in terms of just natural ability around the the, the inside 50 area. Um, so they're, they're probably the two of the best that are uh, in the entire family. But Morris is, he's just, he's, he's hardworking, you know. So once he builds his engine to be AFL level, um, he's just going to always play a role and you know he will just do the team things he's he's very much team first so you know he's not that uh, freakish talent like Willie and Cyril are but yeah he's going to play a very important role that Richmond supporters will just love watching for for years to come. Speaking with Dean Rioli on the line ahead of Indigenous Round, so Douglas Nichols Round. And if you want to send in a text message, a question, feel free on the temper text machine, 0433981116. Thought we might talk about your career, Dean, because it's quite a remarkable one. You made the move from the Northern Territory to WA at the young age of 14. Is it true you were actually poised to play for West Coast, but then Kevin Sheedy was very eager to pick you up and he decided to override his recruiters and send you to the Bombers? Oh, look, I uh, I was overlooked in three drafts, I think it was. and um, But, yeah, that 97 season, um, which we won the flag, I won the Rising Star for the Waffle at that time. And I kicked four in the grand final. And I thought, you know, that was the year that I'd, I'd hopefully get drafted. And, and I got overlooked again. And um, that's where West Coast, you know, Mick Malthouse asked me to come down and do pre-season with them and, um, basically, at the end of the pre-season, before the the, the rookie draft, he he said, "Yep, we're going to pick you up with our first pick, which was I think it was pick number four." And then, um, yeah, I'd spoke to eleven clubs at that stage, and and Essendon wasn't one of them. But uh, so I just assumed I was going to end up at at the West Coast Eagles. And then, yeah, I was in my first ever day at uh, university when my manager come kicking the door in to say, you're going to Essendon. Um, you know, and I was a fanatical Bombers supporter from 1989 when Michael Long ended up there. And um, so, yeah, I was wrapped um, to be picked up by the Bombers. And Sheets tells the story that he was the, he overrode the um, the recruiters to, to pick me up. But then, you know, Adrian Dodoro, who took over from Noel Judkins there. That was his very pick, uh, first pick, and he tells me, you know, that she's just not telling him the truth, but <laughs> it was his decision. So, look, still to this day, I don't know whether it was Adrian Dodoro or whether it was Kevin Sheedy that, uh, yeah, made the call to pick me up, but either way, I was happy. Oh, unbelievable. And just a question off the text machine, actually, David from Surrey Hills. Uh, the name Rioli is synonymous with footy and great silky ball movement. How much of it is natural ability and how much of it comes down to hard work? I suppose that's an interesting question because ultimately you've got to have some level of natural ability to play the game. In your experience, how much of a percentage, if you can estimate, comes down to natural ability and, and also to hard work and maybe the influence of playing footy up in the top end as well? Oh, look, oh, I think, well, really, you'd look at at least 50% of it is natural talent and um, it's, it's probably a lot more than 
you know, other people entering the game. Um, but the reality is that we, as kids, it, it's amazing the amount of games we would play on the Tiwi Islands with the Tiwi kids um, just to develop the skill. And you don't realise you're doing it, but, you know, you pick out forks in a tree and, and whatever it is. And most of the time we didn't have actual footballs. We would tape up, you know, old newspapers with um, sticky tape just to have a football because, you know, we didn't have access to a footy a lot of the times and, and it was just a lot of skill. But then when we did have footballs, I was lucky enough that, you know, I had an older brother who was uh, pretty fanatical on just improving his skills. And so he just made me left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And it was like 300 kicks every morning. Then we'd go to school and, you know, kicks after school. And and I was the one that my role was just to um, to lead. You know, he was always looking to improve his skills and, I was basically the younger brother that just got told what to do. And, um, yeah, so a lot of it we worked hard as kids, but then when you get to the AFL, it's um, obviously the coaching you get at this level, you're always naturally going to improve. But, you know, you start at a very young age. Uh, football is the number one sport on the Tiwi Island, so you grow up. And when you've got, you know, I had eight uncles, um, that that's all it was. And, you know, it was hard. they were always hard to impress. And as young kids, we're always looking for, you know, their, um, their tick of approval. So we had to compete against each other to, to try and get some sort of, you know, acknowledgement from our uncle. Shane off the SMS machine, the temper text machine, says, G'day, Dean, an incredibly skilled player, an exciting player to watch. You're an absolute champ, mate. Thank you as an Essendon supporter. Who was your toughest opponent ever, asks Shane. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Um, look, I... There were, there were two um, that stand out. So, obviously, John Warsfold at West Coast Eagles, you know, he was a, a tough, intimidating player. I think I was more intimidated because I sort of got him at the end of the career, but it was because I admired him as a kid and, and loved the way he went about his football. He was, uh, I think, by the time I hit the field, I was already I was already done because in my head I was, you know, continually playing over that I was coming up against John Walsfold. Uh, but my toughest opponent clearly was, the, or definitely was Matty Whelan. So Matty Whelan, you oh, know, yes. being another Territorian and uh, I played some state footy with Matty and, you know, he just knew how to play Indigenous players because he grew up, you know, in Darwin playing against, you know, young Indigenous players that like to try and balk and dodge and weave and take on the opposition and, and you know, that was just natural in our game but uh, Matty would never fall for it because, you know, I think he used to bench press 150 kilos <laughs> as well. So once he grabbed you, most times I was, you know, I'd fortunate enough to be able to palm off some players and um but Matty Whelan once he grabbed you you're gone so uh <laughs> he knew um he knew how to play the indigenous boys and and he was just uh extremely tough to play against so Matty was definitely my toughest one oh fantastic Dean Rioli on the line joining us here on SEN I just want to take you through quickly obviously missing out on the 2000 grand final of the premiership you got to experience the grand final uh, occasion in 2001 when you went down to Brisbane. How tough was it missing out in 2000 due to injuries and injuries throughout your career as well? Yeah, look, uh, breaking my collarbone uh, just before the final series was was tough. Um, but look, my my goal coming into the AFL was just to play in the grand final under Kevin Sheedy alongside Michael Long. Um, you know, so that was definitely a, a, a goal of mine and 
which was disappointing um, when I, I broke the collarbone because that, when you look at the end of your career, that was the only shot. But, you know, coming into the game, I thought finals was a regular thing for Essendon at the time because 99, we went down by a point to Carlton and losing that 2000 grand final, or not playing in that, but then losing 2001 and Michael Long uh, did his hammy on the Thursday before the grand final it was just so many things that, you know, my number one goal coming into the game was just to play in a flag with Longy, um, you know, didn't eventuate, but look, you look back at it now and as disappointed as it was, um, still, look, I, I'm just very grateful for my time at the Bombers and, yeah, I was a Bombers supporter going there, so I was lucky enough, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, it was, it was exciting times, but, yeah, I remember John Doherty telling me you know, his time at Carlton, he had more downs than ups. Mm. And then I look at my whole career and it's so true. There's so many um, exciting memories, but you probably have more downs than ups in a in a football career. And, um, yeah, it's exactly what my career ended up at Essendon. That's an interesting insight. Dean Rioli joining us on the line. Now, a lot has been made of the Bombers of today during the week. Obviously, there was a lot of publicity about their game plan and how they're going to have to change things around. And obviously, there was uh, the loss to Sydney and everything that surrounded the publicity early in the week. What are your thoughts on the Bombers at present? And how do you think they could improve to get back to those heights of the early 2000s? Because it's been, what, 18 years since they last won a final? Yeah, look... uh... Well, you look at this year alone, they're they're missing almost, you know, four or five of their, their forward players and young Snelling and and uh, Tipper and, um, you know, there's some really good players that are still to come into that forward line and that's not really the answer. But I remember she drank me 12 months ago and basically asked me, you know, what do you, what do you think about Bombers? And, uh, but that's where, you know, when I played, it was... It was uh, a very good era, and, you know, we were very fortunate, but, you know, I had Dean Solomon, Mark Johnson, you know, uh, Paul Barnard, Damien Hartwick, you know, they were just, uh, Jason Johnson, they were just tough, hard mongrels in our side, <laughs> and they were great players, but they were they were ruthless, right, and they, they hated being beaten, and, and, you know, I was sort of a nice guy on the footy field, and compared to them anyway, but I was one of those <laughs> nice guys that just, I played hard, but these guys went out there and they just, you know, you could see they hated being beaten. You know, Damien Hardwick, who was a family man, such a gentleman off the field, but as soon as he crossed that line, he was just a beast of a competitor. And we had plenty of those, you know, Dean Wallace. And, you know, you can just go on and on about the uh, the the mongrel we had in that football side. But, you know, we, we probably intimidated a lot of sides. So that's one thing I look at the Bombers now. And, um, you know, I'll see... Draper, uh, the young Ruckman, and, and you know, uh, there's a, a handful of guys that have got that mongrel in them. Mm. They're all nice guys, and they're, you know, they're just nice footballers. They've got a few injuries that would make a big difference, but, yeah, I think they just need to, to get back and believe that they belong, um, they can compete, and, yeah, just really, uh, it's hard because you know they're giving effort, but it's just not quite coming together, and, you know, they're, they're a lot better than where they are on the ladder. Um, so, yeah, hopefully they get a few of these key forwards back um, and, you know, hopefully they can have a better second half of the year than they had the first. Well, Dean, really appreciate your time. Love talking about your career and your insights, particularly into the current day Bombers. And all the best. You'll be attending the Dream Time at the G game, I believe. 
Yes, yes. I uh, just flew in late last night, so I'll be there. And yeah, quite. An, I think it's the first one I've been to for a few years now, so quite uh, looking forward to it. Well, hopefully the Bombers can show some ticker against the Tigers on a big occasion. Dean, really appreciate your time. Enjoy the weekend. No, no worries. I know Finn, uh, Finn Campbell will be listening. I think he wanted to send a text in, but uh, g'day, <laughs> Finn. Hope you're doing well. Uh, good stuff. Dean Rioli, former Essendon champ, joining us on the line. We'll chat VFL with Nigel Carmody after this. You're listening to the Sporting Capital. Putting us on the line, it's a bit of a homecoming in a way. I used to do this slot for many years chatting about the VFL. I speak of Nigel Carmody, who's part of Channel 7's VFL commentary team, and he joins us on the line. Nigel, thanks for your time. Hey, Damien. Well put. A bit of a homecoming indeed. <laughs> uh, nice to be back on SEN and nice to be talking, to be frank. I was laid up in bed with food poisoning yesterday, so I'm oh, no. a lot better than I was 24 hours ago. And after uh, unfortunately missing my racing.com commitments yesterday, I'm looking forward to a big weekend of Flemington Saturday and then Carlton Sunday for our seven VFL game between the Blues and Sandy, which on paper looks a cracker. Oh, absolutely. Uh, gee, I hope you're all right. The voice sounds good, which is the main thing, because we love your calling capabilities, as we know. Hey, it's going to be an interesting weekend, and it's going to be intriguing to see how Casey Demons continue to perform, because they've been pretty consistent. Probably the only two times they've shown elements of vulnerability. Ironically enough, one of those came against Essendon, where they only won by three points, and the Bombers at VFL level had not won a game this season so far. And the other time was maybe against the Box Hill Hawks going a few weeks back, where the Hawks hit the front probably at the 10-minute mark of the last quarter, and the Demons, mainly through the aid of Kate Chandler, managed to remain composed and steer to victory by, I think it was about nine points. Can the Demons be beaten? I think there's still some sense of vulnerability there. It's just they seem to remain composed when they are tested. Yeah, I think your point at the beginning with your introduction in that their performance at the moment is very reflective of where their AFL mm. side is at. And Casey have been a very consistent team, perhaps across the last decade, to be frank, and almost for the duration of their alignment with Melbourne that dates back to sort of the late 2000s. They've been a consistent finals team, even when Melbourne haven't necessarily been at the sharper end of things in the AFL. But I think you can draw some real clear parallels between Richmond, AFL, VFL of 17, 18 and 19. And what we're seeing right now from the Melbourne-Casey alignment on both sides of it. In some respects, though, this weekend and this round nine is is moving weekend in, in some respects for the teams because we have Casey, the top side in the competition, undefeated and Collingwood in second, both having buys. Now, Correct. every team's ultimately going to end up on the same number of home and away matches. But I think psychologically, a few teams will feel like they can make some ground this weekend with the top two having a rest. And yeah, again, your point regarding Casey having some vulnerabilities, I think is reflective of the evenness of the competition and yes Essendon a zip and seven on the season and they've been unfortunately smashed by injury and availability at times we saw that firsthand in our match two weeks ago when they played Box Hill who have really started to hit some form in the last month and Essendon of course had those five outs as a result of the flu going through their mm. AFL team leading into that fantastic win against Hawthorne at AFL level but what that meant the following days the Bombers had five really good players ripped out of their VFL team as a result and then clearly they were struggling for depth so hopefully a win's not too far away for them and I'm sure Casey would be hoping a loss isn't too far away but I think there's probably an inevitability about that as well. Yeah that's right we're speaking with Nigel Carmody if you want to send in a text message feel free on the temper text machine 0433 98 11 16 
Now, we'll get into the actual games themselves, round nine action, and an interesting one. We'll start off with your match of the day on Sunday on Channel 7's VFL coverage, Carlton taking on Sandringham. Both teams effectively coming off a bye, and Sandy, of course, had a pretty rudimentary win over the Northern Bullants, who, aside from that game against the Giants, where they were smashed by over 100 points, haven't been disgraced this season in most of their losses. The Blues have been... Pretty consistent, although I tell you what, they had the absolute wind knocked out of them a couple of weeks ago when they led by eight goals at three quarter time against Frankston. And for some, I don't know how, Frankston, who kicked three goals to three quarter time, kicked 10 goals in the last term to snatch a remarkable victory. So the Blues, in a way, would be smarting about that and be keen to atone. So that'll be interesting to see how they shape up in the early minutes, in particular against Sandy. Yeah, both teams, as you mentioned, coming off the bye. And Carlton left Frankston Park with their tail between their legs a couple of Saturday nights ago. It would have been a fairly sullen drive back to wherever they were going post that performance. But again, reflective of where Frankston are at this season under Danny Ryan. They're now four and three and very much a finals contender. Carlton are the number one possession team in the competition. They're averaging 21 possessions a game more than any other team in the competition. And you only have to comb through the composition of their side at the moment. Will Hayes, who's obviously had a great tenure in the VFL north of 100 games, of course, most of those coming with Footscray, but now part of Carlton set up. He's averaging 33 possessions a game this year and has been brilliant for him really wherever they've decided to slide him across the course of the season. But the strength of their team at the moment, when you consider they're calling on the likes of Paddy Dow, uh, Will Setterfield as well, there's real strength in that team at the moment, but they've got a very strong composition of VFL listed players. And I think they've recruited really shrewdly in, in the last couple of years as they've set their program up, up under... Daniel O'Keefe, and I don't think there's been a more effective forward in the competition than Ben Crocker in the last two years. 29 goals last year and 19 from his seven this season. He's in a, a super vein of form at the moment as well. And from a Sandringham point of view, well, it's perhaps a little bit a mirror image of Carlton. They perhaps don't have the same depth of experience in their VFL-listed players. Goy Lockett, north of 50 games, and Sam Donnell, who's part-time player and part-time coach and almost seems to be putting to the, the team for Jake Batchelor only when required if they don't perhaps have the, the structure of their team right. Apart from that, they're a pretty young group, but they're, they're playing some really good footy at the moment. And, and again, you can see the, the strands of their team coming together. But again, St Kilda are in good form at AFL level at the moment, and that's keeping some reasonable talent like the likes of Tom Highmore in the VFL side at the moment. And again, I think if you look through both Carlton and St Kilda's emergency list for the AFL games they're both playing this weekend and it is, again, perhaps reflective of the strength they've got at VFL level. That's right. You mentioned Highmore. He was brilliant in defence a couple of weeks ago against the Bullands. Likewise with Liner, who was arguably best on the ground. He just continued to accumulate possessions. We're speaking with Nigel Carmody, Channel 7 VFL commentator. <laughs> Already off the text machine, people are asking for your best on Saturday in the racing. I knew that would happen, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, we might My get to that later. My normal response to that, Damien, is uh, I delegate to our experts. I'm purely there to host, so I'd say it's... Uh... Clint Hudson or Ben Ascari or any of the other well, Hill. experts yeah. on racing.com are the ones to follow. Oh, fantastic. Uh, in terms of the matches to come this weekend as well, Richmond take on Essendon in the curtain raiser to the dream time at the G game. Can the Bombers lift for the occasion, do you think? It'll be interesting to see how they go at the G. I'm not sure if too many people will be there early, but you might get a smattering of a crowd there at the G. And good experience, obviously. I think we've had just the one game from memory, Box Hill v Sandy being played at the G. And, 
There's not too many. Casey take on Sydney from memory later on in the next couple of weeks, but there's not too many VFL games played in that traditional curtain raiser slot. So it'll be a good experience for particularly some of the younger players. There should be more. It's the simplest form of Agreed. pre-match entertainment we've got, and it's the best value as well. Don't worry, there'll be people there to 2.45 bounce on Saturday afternoon at the G, and I think this is just magnificent programming. The game quite easily, it's a Richmond home game. It could have been played at Punt Road, but pushing that game onto the MCG, both teams are going to be wearing the Indigenous round strips as they are at AFL level as well. I think all those things together it just makes the magnificent event that Dreamtime at the G is even better, hopefully, and what's better than seeing four quarters of footy, seeing eight, and even, you know, people might get along early, see the game, duck out for a little bit and enjoy some hospitality somewhere close to the MCG and then come back for all the build-up to the match itself. Can Essendon bounce back? Well, you'd imagine we're going to get a collective response from their football club this weekend based on what's happening at both AFL and VFL level at the moment. So you'd like to think so. Again, there's been some heartening performances, I think, from some Essendon VFL-listed players this season. Um, Joe Atley's, I think, led them really admirably of late, and they're giving opportunity to a lot of local products who are coming out of the Essendon District Football League and getting a taste of the next tier up, which I think is really, really important. The Tigers, well, they'll be smarting because they were in the in the lead for the opening three quarters last Sunday in our broadcast game at Box Hill, and the Hawks put them to the sword in the final quarter. And a lot of that was driven from the centre bounce where simply Box Hill got on top and took it out of the front of the stoppage, which we know is so devastating the way the game and the rules are structured at the moment as well. So watch for a bit of a response there. A play to watch from a Richmond point of view. I haven't had a chance to have a look at their AFL squad for the weekend, but really taken with Noah Cumberland's game on the weekend. He's kicked three goals oh. in each of the last two VFL matches. You'd imagine he's not far off an AFL call-up. Yeah, Gibkus and Robbie Tarrant coming into the AFL side for the Tigers of that dream time at the G game. Biggie Ewan has been omitted, so you get the sense he might be playing in the VFL side Cubs Saturday. And yeah, Cumberland's been fantastic. I know he was out for a few weeks earlier in the season, but when he's on fire, he is on fire and certainly does make a contribution. I want to touch on Footscray v. the Gold Coast just briefly, Nigel, because it's interesting with the Dogs. They're not going as well as they were last season in the VFL, but they've had a few smattering of players who've made a contribution coming up from VFL level to AFL level. You look at Karmas, obviously, Buku Karmas, who's really taken the competition by storm in many respects, and he was brilliant at VFL level earlier on in the season. And there's still a decent amount of depth there. Riley West has been pretty consistent around the middle of the ground at VFL level. Hayden Crozier is still there as well. So how do you make the Dogs' VFL list, or what do you make of them so far this season and the way that they're performing, given they probably underperformed compared to last year? Oh, totally. And they'd be really surprised, I think, with their performance, particularly after being undefeated when the season ran aground last year due to COVID. They're two and five at the moment. They sit in 15th spot on the ladder. And yeah, it's completely not reflective of what their VFL program has delivered since they went standalone in 2014 with not just the two premierships, but also the smattering of players that have either supplied to the Western Bulldogs AFL side, all that have gone into the draft pool and gone and shown their wares elsewhere. Perhaps the positive story for the Bulldogs this season, much in the way that we've seen countless players, Will Hayes, Anthony Scott, and now obviously the latest graduate is Robbie McComb, is Lockie Sullivan, who's had a brilliant season for them so far. He's averaging 28 possessions a game, and it's been a real leader for them, but he needs a few to jump on board, and no better time than this weekend against the Suns, who... Again, it's perhaps a bit repetitive of our conversation tonight, but the Suns program looking really promising at the moment in the VFL. Three and three, they're almost at parity in terms of 
percentage and in the losses they've had, they've been relatively competitive. Uh, if they can take this gap this weekend, they're another team that will put themselves in the positive and again in the finals conversation. Yeah, Robbie McComey, you mentioned before, it's a great story coming from local level effectively. He was playing for Vermont in the Eastern Football Netball League not too long ago and really progressed his way up the ranks. I want to touch on just briefly, Nige, the Northern Bull Ants are taking on Geelong on Sunday at Preston City Oval. They haven't been disgraced, in my view, at a lot of their losses, as I mentioned before, so far this season. And they celebrated their 140th anniversary uh, last weekend against Port Melbourne, where they went down, despite leading for a fair portion of the game. As a former player yourself at this level, what are your memories taking on the Bull Ants out at Kramer Street? Could it be an intimidating atmosphere? There's always a hard place to win, that's for sure. I can remember having a shot for goal outside 50 to try and win a game there one day, which unfortunately didn't have the trip or the accuracy. Uh, look, I think what the team out there, you know, Shane Jowles, Josh Fraser last year, he's now obviously gone back into the AFL system, but Shane Jowles, Steve Nick and Steve Papel, who's been an incredible contributor, not just to the, the Northern Bull Ants Preston set up in recent years, but uh, I think the VFL as a whole, uh, uh, strong Preston is really important for the league and clearly its heritage, as you touch on, with the 140 years being celebrated. Paul Amy, who does a tremendous job covering not just the VFL, but local footy as well, particularly via his Twitter account, put up some great photos of their past players day last Sunday. And, you know, greats like Jamie Shaw, who got back and congregated there. And, um, yeah. John Burke as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Who's famous, obviously, for being in Collingwood colours as well. But, yeah, and the guy I just continue to tip my lid to for his loyalty is Tom Wilson. He's, again, punching out a really strong season, averaging... 20 kicks a game to be sort of in the, the top seven or eight in that statistic in the league. And he no doubt would have had opportunities at other stages to either go back to whether it's the Northern Footy League or the Eastern Footy League or perhaps somewhere else, or maybe even go to a program in the VFL that maybe has a greater chance of success than the Bullets. But he's been incredibly loyal and such an important leader through turbulent waters for this football club. And hopefully uh, in his time there, he's going to get rewarded and, yeah, that's not going to be an easy trip for the Cats out to Preston City Oval on Sunday. Off the SMS machine, the temper text machine, of course, uh, Michael from Reservoir. Jalen Forp was going well for the Box Hill Hawks. Unfortunately, has been struck down with injury, was going well. He, of course, is the son of Alan Forp, who played a smattering of games at AFL level in the 90s. And Dean, off the SMS, agree with Nige R.E., the curtain raiser idea should be played more often. Just in terms of the rest of the fixtures, I noticed you got the majority of them are standalone teams against an AFL side. Lions, of course, take on Williamstown, who have been struggling, which is a bit of a far cry from their 2019 VFL grand final appearance and were so close to winning that flag against Richmond. Coburg take on Sydney. Coburg have shown little glimpses, but a lot of the standalone clubs, bar probably Southport and to a lesser extent Frankston, Port Melbourne taking on Southport this weekend as well. Uh, it's interesting with the standalone clubs and there's this debate still going on as to where the VFL as a competition goes. Does it go into a effectively a reserves type set up completely and exclusively? Where does the future stand, do you think, for a lot of the standalone clubs who do have a pretty good supporter base? A lot of their games is a decent crowd. They're probably more so than the matches involving exclusively AFL reserve sides. But at the same time, where does a balance sit in your view in the future of the competition? To borrow a line from this frequency at 9am on a Monday morning, I think there's a few too many snap judgments getting around. Yep. Uh, we've got to remember, we've come out of two years where most of these clubs have been lucky to play nine or ten organised games of footy. So you had a wipeout in 20, you had 
a patchwork season last year, mm. and then you've still had a tail of problems this year. So contrast that with an AFL program, and yes, there's some delisted players who've come out of AFL clubs in the last two seasons and are in VFL standalone teams this year. But for the most part, there's a lot of players on a VFL list who've either had no footy or little footy, and on the back of that, little training or no training in the last two years. So that creates a real divide. But also these clubs coming back together effectively is is a big thing as well. So I think you've got to just... Everyone wants to make these sort of, oh, well, if, if you know, Williamstown are struggling, which they haven't sort of done traditionally, and Port Melbourne are out of the out of the eight at the moment and they're struggling. I think that's, that's a bit product of the last couple of years. And it's a little bit cyclical too that a little bit like list management at any level, they've had a wave of tremendous contributors to their football clubs move on or age and quite simply the turnover of some of these VFL lists. If you actually went and put it into an Excel spreadsheet, you'd be scrolling a long way down yeah. the page to look at the ins and outs and the play movement. So the AFL programs have been a, a lot steadier and they've had a lot more continuity. So yeah, Williamstown is a case in point. We did their game against Geelong a couple of weeks ago. They have been battered by injury. Like, uh, I know Justin Platt very well, and I feel for him and his coaching staff at the moment, and it's only got worse for them. James Cousins went down with a syndesmosis in that match against Geelong, which they were right in until the very, very end of that match. So they're a bit stiff to not be better than the one win they've had on the season so far. Coburg have had a win. They've had some, some poor games. Their percentage is reflective of that at the moment as well. But I think we've just got to give these programs not just this year, I think it's a couple of years of just betting down and everything at sub-AFL level in football terms getting a bit back to normal. We're seeing it in local footy and country footy as well. It's going to take a bit of time for everything to settle. So I think everyone just got to take a chill pill on some of that stuff. Uh, fair enough. And salient points that you make, Nigel, really well put. And yeah, look, I remember having a look at the Williamstown list even uh, for round one when they took on North Melbourne. And I think from memory, there were eight debutants. There's been a lot of turnover compared to that 2019 season. And a lot of these players too had jobs that might have been affected over the last two years. It's different to obviously the comparatively cushioned type situation that AFL players are in in terms of their wages and everything like that. So uh, well said, Nigel. Appreciate your time. And hopefully you look after yourself after that food poisoning episode. And we're here bright and ready for Carlton v Sandringham on Sunday on Channel 7's VFL coverage. No, up and about, as I said, looking forward to a good weekend. Flemington's today on racing.com and then head out to the footy on Sunday. We'll have Brendan Goddard in special comments with Nice. Campbell Brown getting the call up for the AFL game that follows our match between the Hawks and the Lions down in Launceston. Yeah, he'll be sitting next to Matt Hill on the plane, I'm told. So that'll be a fantastic... Imagine being a fly on the wall with that conversation on the flight down. Fantastic. Nigel, the best, mate. Thanks, Damien. Nigel Carmody joining us here from Channel 7's VFL commentary team. We'll take a break. Back with more on the Sporting Capital right after this. Damien Watson with you. Chris Coles from the BBC joins us on the line. One of the most respected, in my view, analysts in regards to the EPL in terms of journalists out there and the way he speaks. Uh, he's very, very well spoken. There's no question about that. Good evening to you, Chris. And I think it's afternoon to you at UK time. Just, Damien, yes. We've just ticked into the afternoon here. It's great to be with you again. Thank you very much for your kind words. Oh, it's been a, a while now. You're leaving the BBC, mm. uh, my understanding. Where are you headed, if, if you don't mind me asking? I'm sort of leaving the BBC, but staying within the BBC. Oh, it's, uh, it's one of those weird, weird things where, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very big organisation. So 
it's it's clearly uh, one of those moves that uh, is designed to um, to leave a little bit of it and then go to another part of it. So so yeah, I won't bore you with the logistics. No, fair enough. But I've uh, really enjoyed your analytics and uh, just the way you explain each match pretty much round by round. It's fantastic. And this is a very exciting round to come as well with the climax of the English Premier League season afoot. What are your thoughts going in in terms of who's going to take top spot? I mean, Liverpool obviously took on Southampton uh, what, uh, 24 or so hours ago. Everton mm. take on Crystal Palace, of course, 1am Eastern time tomorrow morning. So we'll start off with that, given that is the match to come in the ensuing hours. If Everton get relegated from their current position, I think that it's fair to say they've only got themselves to blame. They had a capitulation at home to Brentford on the weekend. They blew the lead twice, a couple of red cards as well. So they're not going all that well in terms of their morale. Crystal Palace at the present time are in 13th spot with not a heck of a lot to play for. What are your thoughts? Obviously, Everton trying to avoid relegation. They're only two points clear of Burnley, who are in 18th spot and that's probably the only changeover because Watford and Norwich City are clearly going down. Mm. Yeah, well, well, first thing to say, Damien, I think is, and you mentioned it right at the start, that for the first time in a long time in the Premier League, there are lots of things to Correct. sort. We've had recent seasons where it's been very, very cut and dry, whether Manchester City have romped to the title. Yes, we had that Manchester City-Liverpool battle a couple of years ago, but normally at this stage, Everything is, is done. Relegation spot sorted, Champions League spot sorted, the title race completed. Not this time. Title race, Champions League and a final relegation spot all up for grabs, which does make it very exciting. Starting at the bottom, yeah, Everton, they've had a, they've had a pretty miserable season, it's fair to say. Started with Rafa Benitez in charge. There was always controversy there because of his links with Liverpool. It didn't go well. They ummed and ahed about his replacement, eventually landed on Frank Lampard, the former Chelsea manager, who was looking for a way back in. And it's safe to say that he struggled early on. He really struggled to get, I think, to grips with the enormity of the task. I think he struggled with being somewhat of an outsider in, in Everton, which is fully ingrained in, in Liverpool culture. And I think he probably struggled to kind of get to grips with that. However, results have picked up recently and they've, they've managed to just get themselves the right side of trouble because there was, for a long time, a real problem and a real danger for them that they could be relegated with, which would have been disastrous. A club of Everton side, size, the money they've spent and they've got grand plans to move into a huge new stadium, all of that would have been put on the back burner if, if Everton go down. They're two points clear, but you, you still would say that there are teams that are in more danger than they are. You're right, they face Crystal Palace at home, which is big for Everton at Goodison Park. They, they, they thrive at home, and Crystal Palace are absolutely safe and no problems with relegation, but are still a very capable side. So if Everton were to, to win tonight, listen, they know it's in their own hands. If they win, then they're, they're pretty much there. Um, it would need Burnley to, to win a couple of games, and, 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 and that would be the only way that Everton would go down. And, and Burnley's form isn't great. So knowing that it's in their own hands is a help, and I think that'll be Frank Lampard's team talk tonight. Just go and get it done this evening. Go and get it done, and you can enjoy the, the, final, uh, the final match of the season on Sunday. But Palace, under Patrick Vieira, have been very good. They have shown no signs of, of stepping back. Sometimes at this stage of the season, the teams in mid-table, they do get a little bit careless, a little bit sloppy, but you don't really sense that with Crystal Palace. And with the pressure off them, they are dangerous opponents. But I, I would back Everton to get the job done today. I think they're, I think they're showing signs of, of the fight and spirit needed to get out of trouble. So I think they'll win that one.
If you have any questions for Chris, if you follow the EPL, 0433981116 to text in. You mentioned that relegation battle. That obviously adds another layer later on tomorrow morning Australian time when Aston Villa take on Burnley. And Burnley are the team who I referred to before as the only side that can escape that relegation zone at the moment. They're only a point away from Leeds United at the present time. And I suppose with Leeds... Their main criticism over the last couple of years has been not necessarily their scoring capacity, but their accountability in defence. Burnley, on the other hand, they can't secure Premier League safety with a win here, but if they can at least draw at Villa Park, they're in a decent position. It's The problem is their momentum that they did build up has really ground to a halt. They lost, I think, the hands of Aston Villa 12 days before mm. this fixture, 3-1. So you get the sense they need some motivation. Like One probably aspect in their favour is that they have greater incentive to win compared to Aston Villa in this fixture because Villa at the moment in 14th spot, they've got really nothing to play for ostensibly. So with Burnley's momentum in regards to incentive on their side... Could they perhaps get the job done, even though their momentum form-wise hasn't been all that good in recent times? Yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating one. Burnley have always been a club that have found themselves in this position quite regularly over the last four or five years of their time back in the Premier League. There was one season that they finished top half and got European football. It was fantastic. But traditionally, they're a club, because of the budget and because of the size of the club, they're, they're always towards the bottom end of the table. Because of that, though, they, they have this fighting spirit, and it's led to a lot of pundits to speculate that Burnley are well-suited to this battle because they're so used to it. And a team, for instance, like Everton, who aren't used to it, might not be coming into games with all the tools needed to, to fight relegation. And it, it's all the usual cliches. You've got to run harder than your opponent. You've got to go into every tackle. You've got to win every 50-50 and all the rest of it. But Burnley is surprised a lot by sacking Sean Dyche, who, is, who has been Mr. Burnley for so many years. And the caretaker manager, Mike Jackson, did actually perform after Sean Dyche's sacking. They picked up some very good results. That run you mentioned, a creditable point away at West Ham, and then three straight wins against Southampton, Wolves and Watford. And it really did bring Everton and Leeds into the relegation picture. They have derailed slightly with a home defeat to Aston Villa and then a defeat away at Tottenham. No disgrace in that because Spurs obviously have top four ambitions. But their final two games, Villa away, which they play well tonight for us, much later on for you, or early morning for you, and Newcastle at home, they're not bad fixtures, you know, because Newcastle... They're safe, no problem. And as you say, Villa are, are okay as well. And Burnley, they do have this fighting quality. So if they can get something in that game against Villa at Villa Park, then it, it, yeah, Leeds will then be sweating and then they'll be plunged into relegation trouble. And it sets up that final day really, really interestingly, especially, let's say, for sake of argument, if Everton lose and if Burnley win, then we go into the final day with... 37 points, 36 points, 35 points. And one of those teams going down ahead of the final round of fixtures, which see Leeds go to Brentford. Again, not a bad fixture. Burnley at home to Newcastle United. And again, you could say, yeah, that, that's not disastrous because Newcastle are okay. And Everton are away at Arsenal. And Arsenal have top four ambitions still. So we could be in for a very, very interesting final day. A lot will be, that how exciting it'll be, very much depends on, on tonight's results. Absolutely. And uh, Chelsea take on Leicester, which also occurs tonight, your time, or early morning Australian time. And really, Chelsea don't have enough time to dwell on their FA Cup defeat. 
They don't face a heck of a lot of pressure, though, coming into this game against Leicester in regards to where Chelsea sit, which, of course, trying to maintain that spot in the top four. They have managed to secure another Champions League campaign with that vastly superior goal difference to Tottenham, who are in fourth place. And that was mainly due to the fact that Arsenal lost to Newcastle. So they're a lot under a lot less pressure coming mm-hmm. into this game. But... Obviously, they're taking on Leicester at the moment, who are in ninth spot, falling away a little bit, but haven't been too far away from the top seven at any stage. What are your thoughts here? Can Chelsea just put the cherry on top of the cake? Well, yeah, it's difficult with Chelsea this season because they've been plagued by all the off-field problems that has come in the wake of of Roman Abramovich's ownership of the club, the, the, the Russian owner who is heavily sanctioned by the UK government following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So Chelsea have gone through, a, 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 I'd, I'd say it's protracted, but it's, it, it's not really, it, it feels like it's been protracted because it, it, it's in the news every day. But actually, it's probably one of the speediest takeovers that has ever been seen, simply because, and especially for the size of the club and the money we're talking, we're talking billions of pounds. Normally, these takeovers take months and months and months to iron out, to sort. But because of the speed and and the need for it to be quick, there has been lots of issues for Chelsea off the field. And at times, I think it has crept into some of the performances. And and Thomas Tuchel, the Chelsea manager, has come out and said a few times, look, these guys are human. It's impossible for the players not to be slightly distracted by all of the off-field problems. They've got several players coming to the ends of their contracts as well, which isn't helping. And big players too, the likes of Antonio Rudiger, who is seemingly off to Real Madrid come the end of the season. Andres Christiansen could be going to Spain as well and Barcelona. So none of these are ideal situations for Chelsea when you're fighting on so many fronts to try and and perform. And yeah, losing to Liverpool in the FA Cup final, massive blow on penalties. um, And and that would be a real disappointment for for Chelsea, who who got so close to winning um, a major trophy and would have denied Liverpool the chance of a quadruple, which, which still remains a possibility. For this season, it's about finishing strongly, making sure they finish in that third spot. There is a, there is a possibility if Chelsea lose um, both games and, and Tottenham win their final game, that Tottenham will finish above Chelsea in third and Chelsea would drop to fourth. Wouldn't change anything in terms of Champions League qualification. But we know there's, you know, there's, there's a rivalry between those clubs. And I'm sure Spurs fans would absolutely love finishing above both Chelsea and Arsenal. But for that to happen, you, you, you can't see Chelsea losing both of their remaining games, especially as their final game of the season is at home to Watford, who are already down and have been pretty hopeless the last couple of weeks. Leicester, again, have, have had a, an interesting season. They didn't start well. They had Europa Conference League football to kind of get their heads around, and they, they progressed far in the competition. They were beaten by Roma in the semi-finals. Disappointing because Brendan Rodgers, I think, really did focus on winning that European title. But when you look at them, Damien, ninth in the table... And because of the issues that they've had, finding form has been a problem. They've had so many injuries that if I listed all the injury problems, Correct. we'd be here until the kickoff in you know in however many hours. They they've really struggled. So the fact that they've reached the European semi-final and they could finish. I mean, it's tight in that mid-table, granted, but they could finish as high as eight. I think that's a, that's a pretty good season for Leicester, given that the the injury problems that they've had. Having said that, Leicester have got probably a sturdier and more resolute defence to face against Chelsea mm. compared to what they've faced the last couple of weeks against Norwich and Watford where they put eight past them. So there is that golfing class. It'll be interesting to see how they adapt. We're speaking with Chris, Chris Coles from the BBC as we approach the climax of the English Premier League season and also for the championship as well, Chris. And Pat from Morabin has sent in a text off the temper text machine. In the championship, how do you rate Luton Town's season? Can they make the Premier League in the next few seasons? Of course, they're currently in sixth 
position. Fulham at the top of the championship at the moment, and you've got Bournemouth in second. Huddersfield and Nottingham Forest in fourth. Of course, Nottingham Forest, a throwback, I suppose, to the late 80s, early 90s, when they were certainly around the mark in regards to the FA Cup. So I know you probably haven't had a massive look at the championship as compared to the English Premier League, but what are your thoughts on the championship in general and who can make an impact coming up and making the grade? Well, yes, you mentioned those four teams, Dan, and we are into the, the, the post-season playoffs uh, now. So, so Luton were actually uh, beaten by Huddersfield in the first semi-final and Nottingham Forest beat Sheffield United a couple of days ago. So the playoff final is between uh, Nottingham Forest and Huddersfield, and that's at Wembley, I think, a week on Monday with Fulham and Bournemouth already promoted. Listen, Luton have had an excellent season. No one really expected them to be as high as they are. But Nathan Jones, the, the manager of Luton, is, he's quite a character, Damien. He is all action. He is like a little jack-in-the-box on the touchline. And his team very much plays in, in his style. They are excellent to watch because they just do not give you a moment's peace. The team is not full of household names. It probably has one of the lowest budgets in the championship. Yet they are absolutely everywhere. They are relentless. They, they have a couple of, of excellent fullbacks James Bree on the right and Mari Bell on the left both are are, are the, the typical modern day fullback that they spend more time in the attacking half than their own their own half they've got a very solid back three they tend to play uh, midfielders that again are, are the kind of midfielders that you probably hate to play against because they just do not give you a moment's peace and they have a, a striker up front in, in Elijah Adebayo who is, is young but he is very, very good, and he scored so many goals. And I know lots of big clubs are looking at Adebayo, so he might not be a Luton Town player for much longer. If they can keep that squad together, and Nathan Jones can continue to work his magic, then Luton do have an opportunity of, I think, going into the Premier League. The Championship is a strange division. It sometimes is full of teams that are going through so many transitional periods, so they take a while to get used to the style, whereas Luton have been together now for such a long time and fully merited their place in the playoffs. Just couldn't quite get over the line to get to the final, but credit to Nathan Jones and Luton. They've been excellent. And in terms of the teams coming up, Fulham and Bournemouth, well, yo-yoing, aren't they? They were, they were Premier League clubs not so long ago. They'll have to recruit well. They'll have to really recruit well to make sure they stay in the Premier League. But Brentford, prime example, if you do that, you can stay in the division. They've done brilliantly this season. Um, and Nottingham Forest and Huddersfield, Forest have been outstanding this season. They've got a, a really good side too. And if they were to go up, you fancy them, given that the fan base and the tradition at the city ground, they've got every chance of staying in the Premier League. And Huddersfield have been in the Premier League recently as well. So you'd think they'd have a chance. But it's all, as always, with these sides, recruitment. Get that right. You have a chance of staying in the Premier League. Look at the teams that have come down. Norwich and Watford. Did they really get their recruitment right? I know budgets are different. You could say no, whereas Brentford have this brilliant model where they just seem to find players that fit in their style of play and they've really progressed this season and will finish, come through mid-table and that's credit to Thomas Frank and the team. So if you go up, you need to buy well, recruit well and then you have a chance. Well, if Forrest do get promoted, it'll be interesting to see the reaction as well. Because you think of people, Chris, like the late Brian Cloth, who was a brilliant mm. manager going back to that late 80s, early 90s period. He was a manager at the time of the infamous Hillsborough disaster, of course. Nottingham Forest mm. playing Liverpool in that match. And uh, yeah, it'll be intriguing to see the fan base and how they do react, because there is that tradition that you mentioned. Now, I guess the main question to finish on, Who's going to take out the title at English Premier League level? Manchester City or Liverpool? It seems at this point in time, with Man City holding sway and the advantage by one point and the form that they're in, it'll be very, very interesting. What are your thoughts as to the climax and who takes out the title? 
Yeah, well, uh, uh, amazingly, Damien, and uh, if this happens, it would be fantastic. It won't happen. There is a scenario if Manchester City lose um, 6-0, which isn't going to happen, but if they do lose 6-0 in their game at home to Aston Villa and Liverpool and Wolves draw 5 all, everything (laughs) will be level and we'd have a playoff. I mean, imagine imagine how good that would be for the first time in history, a playoff with a title. Um, It's not going to happen. Of course, it's not going to happen. But that's how tight it it is up there. Yeah, Manchester City, they hold all the aces, don't they? Point ahead of Liverpool and with a far superior goal difference yeah and goal difference is is absolutely the key and that there's there's six goals between the two and Manchester City are at home to Aston Villa now there is a a, a nice connection with Aston Villa who are managed by Liverpool legend Steven Gerrard so you imagine that Steven Gerrard has all the motivation there not just to beat Man City for his Aston Villa credentials but if he does so then he could play a major part in handing the title to his beloved Liverpool who are at home to Wolves. Can you see it happening? The way Manchester City have reacted, especially following their their almighty collapse in the Champions League when they should have beaten Real Madrid in the semi-final. They conceded twice in the 90th minute and the 93rd minute and eventually lost to a Karim Benzema penalty. That was such a crushing disappointment for Manchester City, who are desperate to win the Champions League. We wondered, will that now derail them in the Premier League? It hasn't. They've kept on going. They were 2-0 down away at West Ham on the weekend. And everyone thought, uh-oh, this is the moment. It all comes crashing down. But they rallied and they got it back to 2-2, kept their noses in front, and you fully expect them to get the job done. But... This is the final day, Damon. You mentioned that 2011-12 climax. Sergio Aguero. I mean, he'll never be forgotten. When Manchester United had pretty much won the title, they'd beaten Sunderland away from home, and Manchester City were drawing at home to QPR, and it was unthinkable until Aguero popped up to score the winner and, and will never, ever be forgotten in Premier League history. Will it be as dramatic? You just can't rule it out. The beauty of this division is you just cannot rule anything out. And if Aston Villa give Man City a go and, let's say, take the lead and Liverpool start piling in the goals against Wolves, who have been pretty poor recently, then pressure does funny things. So we can't wait. It'll be absolutely fascinating to see how it hit pans out. But as I mentioned right at the start, it's just great that on Sunday we will have eyes at the top of the table, we'll have eyes for fourth place, and we'll have eyes at the bottom of the table. And it has been a long time since we've gone into a final day with so much still to decide. Exactly right. Chris, really appreciate your time as always with your emphasis and detail. All the best and enjoy the final day's play. Welcome back. You're listening right around the country here on SEN, your home of sport. If you want to text in 0433981116, Damian Watson here filling in for Sam Hargraves tonight. Well, everyone's been talking about the AFLW collective bargaining agreement. What hasn't been reported on is the fact that at Cricket Australia, they've extended the WNCL season and there's been a pay rise for the women's cricketers there. So fantastic opportunity, particularly as we head in towards the winter. A lot of the players do go overseas and one such player who's had a massive 12 months. She's one of the best spinners in the world in women's cricket and she did fantastically well, was a leading wicket taker in the WBBL the previous season, made a big impact on the inaugural 100 competition, which is coming around, not, it's not too far away, probably only a few months away. I speak of Amanda Jade Wellington, who's kindly given up her time to join us on the line. How are you, Amanda Jade? 
I'm really good, thank you, and thank you for having me. Now, one thing I want to address first before we talk cricket. <laughs> I'm a massive fan of your YouTube channel, The Secret Life of Wello, <laughs> it's called, mainly because the fact that it's pretty raw and you're pretty darn honest too. That, that's what I like about oh. it. And I know Mitch, Mitch Robinson, who's a Brisbane AFL player, does a very similar type of thing with the YouTube channel and uh, does Q&As and everything like that. How did you come up with the idea? And obviously you put a lot into it based on the uh, videos that I've seen. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've had a love for making um, videos and social media for a long time now, and I thought I would give a insight into the cricketing world and my life. And I love collecting Pokemon as well, so yes. I thought that was a little niche I could um, tick off the box for YouTube, and it was sort of a hobby that everyone likes as well. Um, same as thrifting, I love thrifting, going to op shops. Um, I've just started reselling as well, so it's sort of a, a, a look into my life, but also the cricketing life, and I, I absolutely love it. A couple of favourite ones for me. I haven't seen all the episodes yet, but I'll try and get to some more. <laughs> a couple of favourite ones. When you were waiting in line for the COVID test back around Christmas time, oh, did you I wait know. for three hours and then they oh. said no when you were about two cars away? Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. I waited three hours in line and I documented it all and I got to the front of the line and they said, sorry, we're not, we're not accepting anyone else for the day. And I got so mad and I knew I had to record it. <laughs> but no, then I came back the next day and then it took another two hours. So yeah, that oh. was quite quite a funny video. <laughs> Jeez, I'll tell you what. And the other funny one for me, you mentioned the collection of Pokemon cards. And as a card collector myself uh, in the past, I hate when people sell fakes. Your reaction to oh. when some of them sell fakes is hilarious. I love it. <laughs> oh, when, when they sell fakes and they don't even realise, it's just frustrating. But then my concern is when young people, they don't know the difference between fake and real cards, they'll buy it anyway. And then if it's a, a, a fake, you know, expensive card, they might, you know, want to sell it down in the track, but then they can't because it's fake. So it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite frustrating. And it, even <laughs> when you make them aware of it, they still don't believe you. That's the oh, thing. They, yeah, I don't, I don't think they want to be told, to be honest. They just want to sell it. And I'm like, well, it's not worth anything. So you're better <laughs> off not selling it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, same issues of experience as well. Uh, well, we, I guess we better talk cricket. <laughs> the, oh, I will get to it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 100, of course, is coming up shortly. And one of the news items over the last week or so is the new agreement involving women's cricketers in, with Cricket Australia and the extension of the WNCL season, which is the 50-over format, of course, which allows you to effectively play more longer form cricket because there's not many test matches in the women's game. How significant is that from your perspective? Oh, it's massive, isn't it? Um, the progression that it's been throughout the whole year um, and where it's at now, is it's ridiculous, honestly. But it's really good to see that, you know, people from state cricket can actually live off their contracts now. I think the average or... Um, yeah, the average female can actually live off their contract, which is fantastic. And then, and then to double our games for the season, you know, going from six games to twelve is fantastic. You know, I would love to see maybe a shield game in there here and there, maybe give it a trial. But you know, that's that's down in the future. Hopefully, fingers across. But we would love to see that. I reckon one day, one day. I'd love to see you. Maybe one, even to start off with, one match per season of the five day or four day format, if you like between, say, yeah. Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, take on WA or Queensland v Tasmania, just just as a one-off yeah. or something. 
Would that be? I, I yeah. reckon. I reckon it would be awesome. I reckon the girls would love it. It would be an enjoyment. It'll be exciting to see. Um, and I think it will be a really good contest between the states and see who can actually last the five days, really. Um, but yeah, once again, that's probably down the track in, you know, ACA and CA's mind. But you know, with the results we've got so far with the WNCL games, is you know, is a massive win for us. Yeah, no doubt about that. We're speaking with Amanda J. Wellington. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is the 100 and the concept there, which was a massive success in its first season. And you're signed up again, I think, to the Southern Brave, which is very, very exciting. Just for the Aussies out there who probably didn't take much of an interest last year, give us an insight into what it's like. And what was it like playing at Lords? Was that the first time you played there? Oh. Oh, it was a fantastic tournament. Honestly, I fell in love with the tournament. I reckon maybe two games in, um, a hundred balls. Uh, you can bowl five balls at a time. You can bowl ten balls in a row, which was exciting. I got to do that quite a bit, which is awesome. Um, playing at Lords, selling out crowds, it was fantastic. It was a day of cricket. Family can come out watch the men and the women play. Um, it was a day of fun. Really good contest and, yeah, really excited to be a part of the Southern Brave once again. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Because the WBBL worked away from being aligned with the men's in terms of playing a double header. Although I suppose the difference is in the 100, the matches are held closer together, aren't they? It's not like it used to be in the WBBL where there was a two-hour gap between matches. And I suppose being standalone with the WBBL, you do have the advantage of having that little airtime in October and November to yourself because there's not a heck of a lot going on locally in the sporting world in Australia. So I can see why. But it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of preference? Mm. I suppose there are differences in many ways as to how those events are held because you have the bigger crowds when you go back-to-back with the men's pretty much straight off the bat, don't you? Yeah, that's correct. Um, in the in the previous um, past, you know, the WBBL was, you know, the women's game and then a two-hour break and then the men, men play. Um, you know, it was, a, it was still a day of cricket, but the 100 is as soon as we finish, the men go on, try, like, um, warm up and then play straight away. So the time difference is a little bit different um, for the 100 compared to WBBL. But, you know, in saying that, with WBBL, the standalone competition has done pretty well in the last few years. And, you know, the amount of effort CA and all that have put into it, we can see the successful cricketers coming out of it, you know, and, and going over to the 100 and playing in those competitions. So I think, you know, they've done a really fantastic job, but I'm excited to see where the 100 goes. What do you do in the off-season at the moment, Wello? Is it a chance to reconnect? I know you've got your partner there in Elizabeth. And, and take me through also, I know this is a bit of a two-pronged question, because uh, mm. my family are from Elizabeth growing up there. I mean, it's great to see you doing so well in a sporting sense, because uh, I know from my experience, it can be a bit of a, a tough area uh, growing up. But yeah. You've done so well uh, from, from where you're from. And, and ultimately, I know probably the area's changed since I was there, but uh, it, it's great <laughs> to see you uh, from that Smithfield area doing so well. Yeah, I, I love Elizabeth. I'm Elizabethan at heart, and yeah, so you know, I. <laughs> I always call <laughs> I always call I call this area the rough area. But you know, me and my partner have just bought a house. Um, I've been you know buying stuff, going to the markets, reselling, making videos. It's been really nice to have some time to ourselves and um, yeah, take the dogs for a walk and just chill out for a little bit. But I'm super excited to get back into the cricketing season and. Yeah, potentially see what's ahead of me for the next next year or so. 
Yeah, fantastic. And it's been an interesting 12 months for you. You've had a fantastic 12 months on the field. I know there's obviously been selection things as well where you've gone through a roller coaster, missing out of the Ashes squad, but then coming into the World Cup and being part of a winning World Cup squad. I mean, take us through uh, the surreal nature of all of that. Yeah, it's been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Um, I reckon I had one of my best WBBL seasons yet to, to, yeah, so far, especially that um, final game um, where I took the five for eight against the Brisbane Heat. That was incredible. I honestly couldn't have thought to do that, even being on the mic as well. That was the first time I was on the mic, or um, and yeah, I was I was very scared to be on the mic, considering <laughs> what I say on the field and stuff <laughs> so I had to be very considerate of what I was saying but um yeah like selection wise I was you know devastated to miss out on the ashes but then to get picked in the Aussie A stuff and I knew if I could perform there maybe I'll have a shot with the World Cup squad um to be honest I wasn't expecting it and when I you know got the chat with Sean Flegler about you know getting selected I was like are you sure? Like, you haven't done the wrong person yet. Like, are you? <laughs> yeah, I was, to- I was totally blown away by that. And, you know, I rang my parents straight away and my partner and they were super excited for me. So, yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster, honestly. Just the last couple from me, Well, Tell us about the influence of your parents and your partner. From what I've seen in your YouTube videos, they seem like lovely people and your partner probably delivered one of the greatest marriage proposals of all time going back <laughs> in the WBBL. Tell us about the influence yeah. of, of those figures in your life. Oh, my parents are everything to me. And, you know, with my mum and my dad putting in so much time and effort and money for my, you know, career growing up, you know, all those times when mum would drive me to Adelaide Oval stay there until I finished training, driving all the way back to Elizabeth. Um, and dad, you know, he'll take me out to the nets every so often, have a one-on-one session, you know, he'll chase balls while I'm hitting them out on the oval. Um, and then, yeah, my partner Taylor, he's played, he's played a pretty big role in my career so far. You know, he, we had a chat um, about my mental health because he could see it was bothering me and, you know, I'm not the one to, to, you know, speak up or anything like that. And, you know, I was, Oh, as a as a kid, I knew nothing different. It was, you know, it was just what I knew: play cricket, come home, play cricket, go to training, and all that. And he could see it was bothering me, and I knew I had to speak up with him. And you know, we had a chat, and you know, that's when I took the took the time away from the game. And you know, it's really helped me. And I think you know, the last few months has really shown um, that yeah, that that break was you know well needed for me. So yeah, he's played a massive role in my my behalf. I oh, love your honesty there. Amanda J. Wellington joining us on the line. Just a last one before I let you go. I mean, it's been a sad week once again in Australian cricket with the passing of Andrew Simons. And after what we saw with the passing of Rob Marsh and Shane Warne, it's like a sledgehammer to cricketing fans of, of that particular generation. I mean, tell us about what Morty meant to you as a leg spinner. Uh, Shane Warne must have been a pivotal figure in your life. And I really enjoyed watching your video. It was full of raw emotion uh, when you learned of his passing. Just take us through how influential he was oh I know well first up 2022 what a year it is with the amount of people that have passed away especially with Kobe Bryant as well like there's so many people passing away and you know with Shane Warne um yeah like I was honestly not expecting it I remember waking up you know in in when I was away and had a had a message on my phone from my partner saying you know don't be alarmed just ring me as soon as possible something's happened and I, I was freaking out like I thought something had happened to my family and then I rang him I saw the news 
And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I just absolutely <laughs> broke down. And mm. I, you know, he, as a spinner, you always look up to him. You know, he's a he's a king of spin. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to meet him a few times. And, you know, when I when I was playing in the 100, he was there at Lord's when I was playing. So he got to witness me bowling. He got to <laughs> witness me play. And I know I'll always hold that to my heart. And, you know, he, he's, yeah, he's played a massive role in my, my career so far and he always will. And, you know, his legacy will always be there. I don't think there's ever going to be a greater spinner than him. Um, he's the king, the entertainer. You know, he always spoke his mind. And, you know, that's one thing I love to do as well. I always like to be honest. I speak my mind and, you know, it's who I am. Um, so I can relate to him a lot. So, yeah, the passing of him was, you know, absolutely devastating. And, you know, I made a YouTube video, as you said, like about all my raw emotions because I just wanted, I, I felt like I needed to. Like mm. it wasn't for anyone else's, um, you know, they didn't tell me to do it. I felt like that I felt the need to do it because it just means so much to me. And, yeah, I think the video speaks for itself. Well said, Amanda Jade. Thanks so much for joining us and keep the YouTube videos coming. Love watching them. All the best for... <laughs> everything coming up. Thank you so much. And cheers for having me once again. Really loved it. <laughs> Welcome back. Damien Watson with you here on the Sporting Capital right across the country on the SEN network. If you want to text in 0433981116. Time now to chat all things sports media. What's happening across the sports media landscape? And there's plenty in terms of the way messages are being handled and also the journalism side of things as well. And joining us, from Holmes Glen, he's the course leader of the sports degrees, whether it be sports business or sports media, he's right across it. I speak of Sam Duncan, and you can study sports business, health or building and construction, apply now, learn more, do more at Holmes Glen. Sam, welcome to you. Good to chat to you again. G'day, Damien. Good to be with you, mate. Now, talk to us about what's been happening in terms of the Twilight Grand Final, which could be an imminent announcement tomorrow, and how that affects the media output as well and media numbers, because ultimately, if it is at a later time slot, while some traditionalists might not like it, would it affect the TV networks in a beneficial way in terms of ratings? Well, it would, Damien. There's no doubt about that. I mean, for the AFL, this is one of those uh, decisions that they have to make where not all stakeholders are going to be happy. Uh, There's going to be fans, you know, that want it during the day, and and I think the broadcasters would certainly prefer it in the evening. And I think, ultimately, they're going to announce tomorrow that it'll be a twilight grand final, about a 4.30 start. And I think that that's only a stepping stone to a night grand final. And I can't see a ever going back to a day grand final. And the fact of the matter is that it will add value to the product. It'll add value to the game if it is played ultimately in prime time because it's going to draw more eyeballs to the screen. And the more eyeballs you have to the screen, the bigger the advertising packages you can sell. And that's good news for the broadcasters. So I mean, the AFL obviously need um, to maximise their revenues. They need to maximise their product. They're about to enter uh, what I think will be a very keenly fought um, media rights Mm. negotiations, and they want to go in with big numbers. And last year, which was Twilight in Perth, but an evening match here was the most watched grand final since 2016. 3.9 million people on average were watching, and that was about 20% up on the last day grand final, which was 2019. But keep in mind, that included the GWS, Mm. who don't have a huge following and to be frank it was a blowout 
And also, Sam, we were locked down in 2021, so there was not much else we could do around that time in Melbourne. Uh, so you were basically forced to watch it, really. There wasn't much of an alternative. So a couple of contingency factors there. There's been a lot of talk, actually, this week about why crowds have been down across the board in the AFL. Like People are saying it's due to COVID lag, but I'm not so sure, Sam, because we had... The Formula One Grand Prix, which went gangbusters, the biggest crowd they've ever had. You go to a lot of the nightclubs, etc. The numbers seem to be pretty good. Maybe not as high due to the fact that a lot of people are getting sick around this time of year. But still, I still think it's more to it than just the COVID lag. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it. I definitely think it is more than that. I think. I think what happened over COVID though was people's habits certainly changed. A lot of people became more accustomed to watching sport on television. And I think you will find that for major events, people still want to get out and about, be it a major event within the AFL season, like Anzac Day, or a major event such as the Grand Prix. I do think that people will, will you know, want to be there. For a long season, I think a lot of people, um, uh, you know, have recognised that their preference might be to watch it on TV. I did see a poll on this yesterday, and there were a range of reasons given, and the biggest one was simply that we prefer it on TV. And some sports are television sports. Like the NRL, for example, has been a television sport for years. They don't go crazy about what their crowds are. They sell them fill grandstands they still play on you know moderately you know sized suburban uh, grounds where the capacity might be 10 15 20 thousand but their ratings are big and as a result of that their product sells and they generate revenue not from people going through the the gates gate receipts but from the broadcasting revenues uh, and uh, I suspect that that's going to continue you know um, we can now watch every game that we want with a subscription, either a KO subscription or a Foxtel subscription. You couldn't do that in years gone by. If you wanted to see games, um, you got off your backside and you went. So the crowds are still okay. The other thing to note, Damien, is the entire experience you know, uh, and it's more than just going to the footy or, or the actual footy match, the experience. The footy experience is everything that happens from the time you open your front door to leave your house until you reopen it hours later to get home. It's the train ride. It's how easy it was to get tickets. It's the facilities at stadiums. So all of that matters. Uh, and so there might be still some hesitancy around COVID and trains and packed grandstands. But I think the challenge is there for the AFL going forward in what is very much a media-centric age is all around how we make the experience of attending a footy game as convenient and as seamless and as enjoyable as possible. Uh, and so that has to be part of their strategic planning going forward because the alternative is I'll just sit at home, put the fire on or turn up the heater and have the best seat in the house right in front of the TV. I tend to think too, Sam, that people's outlook on life has changed and maybe their priorities have changed as well. There's so many ways to entertain yourself these days and maybe there are options outside of football. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little bit pessimistic. We're speaking with Sam Duncan from Hobes, Glen. Now, the AFLW collective bargaining agreement was announced earlier today. I'm sure you were across that. What does that mean in terms of driving in revenue? Uh, there's going to be a raise to players Wages, uh, I think, across the board, and the minimum wage is going to increase. The marquee wage is going to increase. 
How does broadcasting rights for the AFLW fit into that? We're still in the midst of a current deal, as we know at the moment, but how does the business and media side of things stack up alongside the CBA? Well, it's going to play a huge role, the next round of media rights, in the future of the AFL. And clearly, the future of the AFL also includes AFLW. And so it should. And so the amount of money that the AFL is playing, the AFLW players, uh, is increasing by about $15 million next year from $10 million to $25.6 million, I think it is. And that's another reason why they'll be absolutely moving marquee matches, such as the AFL Grand Final, to prime time to increase the viewership, to increase the value of the product, to make it more appealing to broadcasters, to ensure that the the right values go up and that the AFL can fund everything that they need to fund, which, let's be frank, in the future is likely to also include a team down in Tasmania, and, and who knows with the Tasmanian team, maybe a 20th team as well. So, I mean... Perhaps they already know from their US venture of a couple of weeks ago that they are sitting in a good position when it comes to the future of their media rights deal. And perhaps that's why they're in a position where they can do these types of things. Um, But one thing we do know is that the AFL receive around 70 to 80 percent of their revenues from the media rights. Uh, And so what we also know is that going forward, they're going to cater more and more to the broadcasters or the streamers to ensure that they are getting what they want, to ensure that they are happy to pay the enormous amounts of money that they currently do. So absolutely, it is linked to the future media rights deals because that is where the AFL basically get the money they need to bankroll the entire competition and the women's competition too. And, you know, we always talk about the AFL media rights, but it's all-encompassing. It's the AFL rights and the AFLW rights and um, maximising those products for the broadcasters so that they themselves can get bang for their buck. They're about to make a, a, a huge investment. Um, they're going to want to know from the AFL, what are you going to do for us to ensure that we get a return on our investment. So uh, fascinating times ahead with that media deal, no doubt about it. Sam Duncan joining us from Holmes Glen. It's been a topic of conversation, that media rights deal, for the last few weeks, ever since Paramount came into the picture and whether that drives the price up or whether it maybe outplays Channel 7 and Foxtel and where free-to-air television is at at the moment as well, along with streaming. It's interesting, that by-play, and that's probably going to change realistically in two to three years. It moves that quickly, Sam, as we know. I wanted to touch on the optics of the tip-for-tap between Dyson Heppel and Matthew Lloyd and their media appearances, obviously discussing the Bombers' form and also whether they should physically impose themselves on the contest more often. What were your thoughts on that tip-for-tat earlier in the week? Look, I found this fascinating, and in particular, I found the Dyson Heppel appearance on the couch on Monday fascinating. Um, In many respects, he was applauded for coming on, but if you read social media, not everyone was all that enamoured by his appearance, and then he got hit over the head um, uh, by a couple of uh, commentators uh, on Footy Classified as well. I mean, here's the thing. When you are playing like Essendon, there's only one way to fix it. When it comes to marketing or PR or spin and you're a footy club, your best friend is your performance. So there's not a thing that Dyson Heppel can say in the media that's going to make everything all right. But what it is, I guess, if you use 
PR terminology, is it was issues management. I mean, he clearly wanted to front up, to face the music and to talk to his fans. And he did that. There's no doubt about that. He did that. But then in doing that interview, he opened himself up for more commentary that wouldn't have existed if he didn't do it. And by that, I'm talking about his response to the Matthew Lloyd comments. Um, I'm talking about the fact that he said that he hadn't seen the Dylan Shield luke Parker um, incident, that he hadn't addressed that with the club. That led to conversations taking place thereafter on shows like Footy Classified, where Kane Corn said he couldn't believe that the media manager hadn't briefed him, and that goes perhaps to the core of the running of the club. Damien Barrett was critical of um, uh, Dyson Heppel and some of his answers on an AFL podcast the next day. And for me, it's really interesting because footy is entertainment. To your, to your point earlier when you said perhaps people have renewed perspective about the role of sport in society, it's true. It is entertainment. These guys are not running for parliament and yet they are scrutinised so heavily. But here's the thing. They don't have to do media. They've got their own media channels that they could easily do and be asked Dorothy Dixes and say, no, I'm just focusing on the footy this week. We want them to do independent media. Correct. But there is a line. Because a lot of people will sit back, players will sit back and say, gee, when it's my turn, will I do it? Will I show up? Uh, or will I just no, say no and pass the buck to somebody else? So it is interesting. We don't want the media just to go easy on the players because, you know, they're entertainers. But there's certainly a line um, when it comes to intense scrutiny whereby one of the perhaps unintended consequences are that the players will say, you know what? It's probably not adding, adding any value to do it. I just might bypass the media this week. This is the problem, though. The media themselves want players to show more personality, but then if they say something out of the ordinary and maybe things that they believe in and they're open and honest, they get scrutinised for it. So it's like, where, where's the balance sit? It's, it's interesting, well, uh, isn't it? Interesting dichotomy. A hundred percent. And here's the other thing about athletes. They're athletes. You know, they're not at home um, sitting down with the media manager going over their lines and carefully going over crafted key messages. Yes, the media manager will brief them. But when you're doing interviews such as the one on Monday, they will, will be raw. They will be uncomfortable. There will be awkwardness. They will be a little bit rough around the edges because these guys are athletes, not media performers. And so I think we need to treat their answers with some caution sometimes and cut them a little bit of slack because really, if they were at home crafting their answers and their key messages rather than you know worrying about the game on the weekend, they'd be hit over the head for doing that. So it is interesting, again, Independent media is king because you do get the hard questions that the fans want answered. Uh, and, you know, you, we say they're entertainers, but they're paid a lot of money and they, as clubs, demand a lot from their supporters. So absolutely, we need independent media asking hard questions. The counterbalance to that is what a shame it would be if we didn't hear from any of our entertainers, i.e. the players, because all of them said about the media... God, you go on a lot. Gee, you give us a hard time. Yeah. Gee, I don't reckon I'm going to do this anymore. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Sam, really appreciate your time as always. All the best for the week ahead, and thanks again for your insight. Absolute pleasure, Damien. Uh, catch you later, mate. Sam Duncan from Holmes Glen. Upskill your career. Learn more. Do more at Holmes Glen.
When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.